Welcome to The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig, a podcast which endeavors to expose the truth behind legal stories that are distorted by mainstream media. And now, here's your host, passionate truth seeker and veteran attorney, Jill Rosenzweig. Welcome back to another episode of The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. I am your host, Jill Rosenzweig, and today I want to talk to you about a legal defense that exists in the United States that I actually didn't even know about until very recently, Um, and I wanted to cover it with you because I think it's really disturbing, frankly, and um, something that people should be aware of in this country. Um, It is called uh, the Gay or Trans Panic Defense. And essentially what it is, is that it's a defense in uh, a criminal case where um, a person who's accused of a crime will try to defend themselves from being convicted for that crime by arguing that the crime was motivated by them essentially panicking when they discover that the person that they attacked is gay or transgender. And surprisingly, this is a defense that's existed in this country for a long time and um, one that's been successful in terms of people being able to reduce uh, the sentence or the conviction uh, of the crime that they've committed. And so um, the reason why I'm talking about this is because about a week ago, the um, state of Nevada passed a bill, uh, it's Senate Bill 97, which was signed into law uh, about a week ago, banning that defense um, so that from this point forward in Nevada, and and actually the law went into effect immediately, so it really is from this point forward, um, in Nevada you cannot assert uh, a gay panic or a trans panic defense anymore. Um, And surprisingly, Nevada is only one of four states in this country that have banned this defense. Uh, So it's Nevada, California, Rhode Island, and Illinois. Um, There's legislation that's been introduced in other parts of the country, including uh, New Jersey and uh, New York, Georgia, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, um, Washington and Washington, D.C., similarly trying to push for a ban of these sorts of defenses. Um, So we'll see what happens in those states. Uh, But I did want to talk to you about the language of the bill that was just passed in Nevada. So I'm I'm going to read Senate Bill 97 to you um, from Nevada that was just passed. I'm going to read the second section to you because it's a little bit shorter and it's pretty much duplicative of the first section. Uh, It says, A person is not justified in using force against another person based on the discovery of, knowledge about, or potential disclosure of the actual or perceived sexual orientation or gender identity of or expression of the victim, including without limitation, under circumstances in which the victim made an unwanted, non-forcible romantic or sexual advance towards the defendant, or if the defendant and victim dated or had a romantic or sexual relationship. Um, And so... Really what this is talking about is, um, you know, this law was brought about because of people who are being charged with crimes of um, assault or murder, and their defense is that they 
suddenly realize that the person that was making a sexual advance was gay or transgender, and they essentially panicked and ended up killing the person or assaulting the person. Um, um, so that's the law that was passed in Nevada. And I just want to explain the actual defense um, so that you understand what prompted this law um, being passed in Nevada. Uh, so essentially, the gay and trans panic defense is a legal strategy. And it's essentially, it's asking the jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or their gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction, including murder. Um, so essentially what the defendant is saying, it's not my fault. I was provoked because you're gay. And because of that, I should be excused from what I've done. Um, it's not a freestanding defense to criminal liability. It's more of a legal strategy, which is used to bolster other defenses that are asserted by a defendant in a criminal case. Uh, so essentially it's usually attached to one of three defenses. Uh, so one way in which it's used is when the defendant asserts the defense of insanity or diminished capacity. And essentially within that context, what happens is the defendant will allege that uh, they were propositioned by the victim and um, due to the sexual orientation or gender identity of the victim, the defendant was triggered into having a nervous breakdown um, and it caused uh, gay or transgender panic. And, um, you know, essentially what they're saying by this is that they they went insane. It, you know, just knowing that the person was gay or transgender caused them to be temporarily insane. And so they, they weren't in control of their actions. Um, and then the second way that people use the gay and trans panic defense is by um, asserting the defense of provocation, which will allow a defendant to argue that the victim's proposition um, or the, their nonviolent sexual advance was sufficiently provocative to induce the defendant into killing the victim. Um, and they basically say that, um, you know, what this means is that the person um, hitting on them just provoked them into this state of um, a gay panic. And they the provocation essentially is an excuse for their actions. And then the third way that the gay panic or trans panic defense is used is uh, the defense of self-defense. So a defendant will claim that they believe that the victim, because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity or their gender expression, was about to cause the defendant serious bodily harm. And um, it basically, the, the kind of disgusting, for lack of a better term, way in which this defense is used is that they're arguing that um, just based on the person's gender or sexual identity, um, that person was more of a threat to them. And so they almost had a heightened right to self-defense. And, um, you know, this type of self-defense argument is used to justify violence when the victim's behavior often will fall short of the serious bodily harm standard. Um, or the defendant used 
a much greater amount of force than was reasonably necessary to avoid danger just because they realize that the person is gay or transgender. And I I just want to point out that obviously there are other minority groups that are victims of hate crimes, but there are few, if any, I, I don't know of any other instances where a defendant will claim that the revelation of someone's race or religion or some other minority identification provoked them to violence, and that's used as an actual defense in a case. Um, So this is a a specific defense that's used with respect to um, gay and trans uh, victims and something that's now being addressed by at least a few um, legislatures in the country, um, but obviously there are many that have not addressed it. I wanted to turn to a discussion of how successful gay and trans panic defenses have been in the past. Um, When we look at cases where these defenses have been raised, we can see that they have been used to acquit dozens of murderers of their crimes. And, um, you know, even as recently as April 2018, uh, the gay panic defense was used to mitigate a murder charge to a criminally negligent homicide. And so, um, you know, it, it definitely is effective And um, I wanted to just talk to you about a couple of cases specifically so that you can hear about how these cases unfolded. So the first case I wanted to talk about is um, a case from 2008 where there was a boy, Larry King. He was uh, just 15 years old and uh, was an openly gay student at his school. He approached another boy, Brandon McKinnerney, to be his valentine. He essentially went up to him and asked him to be his valentine. Um, and from what I understand, he didn't do anything beyond that. Um, he went, asked him to be his Valentine and McKinnerney, uh, ended up shooting him in the head execution style. And, um, the defendant's attorney claimed that he was being sexually harassed by King, um, just based on him being asked to be his Valentine. They, they argued that that constituted sexual harassment and that, um, McKinnerney, uh, went into, a gay panic and was therefore not guilty of murder. And the jury ultimately was not able to reach a unanimous decision. And so the case was declared a mistrial. Um, So basically what this means is that the gay panic defense worked in that case because uh, they weren't able to secure a unanimous decision in that case. And so this boy who murdered this other boy uh, just because he asked him to be his valentine, was able to uh, walk away free and clear and um, not serve any time. The second case I want to talk to you about is a case from 2002. Uh, the young woman, uh, the victim in that case, was a woman named Gwen Arojo, a 17-year-old transgender woman uh, who met these two men online and the three engaged in consensual sex. Uh, several months later, the two men discovered that Aroha was a transgender woman, and they sought her out, beat her repeatedly, and ended up murdering her. I'm not going to share the details of the murder because it's just way too disturbing. Um, and at the trial, one of the defendant's attorneys claimed that his violence was caused by the shock of discovering that Aroha was transgender. And uh, essentially, they asserted that he panicked as a result. Uh, The jury ended up deadlocking, 
and there was a second trial. And in that second trial, they ended up finding this defendant guilty of second degree murder, um, which one might think is a successful trial that he was convicted of murder. But bear in mind, uh, second degree murder means that, um, yes, it's an intentional murder, but it's not premeditated. And from what I can tell from the facts of this case, it seems like the murder was premeditated. And so what I'm saying is that the transpanic defense did result in a reduced conviction. Um, You know, without that defense, one would think that it would have been a first degree murder conviction, but it seems like the transpanic defense did result in this person getting a reduced conviction and a reduced sentence as a result. Um, And then the third case I wanted to talk to you about is one that you might have heard about. It happened a long time ago. It was in 1995, um, but I remember it happening at the time. It was uh, this murder that resulted... um, I don't know if any of you remember, there was a talk show um, called... The uh, I think it was just called the Jenny Jones talk show. It was this woman, Jenny Jones, was the host. And um, she was hosting a show that discussed the topic of secret admirers. And this person named Jonathan Schmitz was invited to be on the show. And he was told, uh, you know, according to, I guess, his account, he was told that there was a woman who was his secret admirer and that he was going on the show to, to see who his secret admirer was. Um, And he showed up on the show and was embarrassed to see that his male friend, Scott Amager, uh, was on the show confessing that he had a crush on him. Um, Three days after the show, Schmitz ended up driving to Amager's home and he shot Amager twice in the the heart, killing him. Um, And at the trial, Schmitz ended up arguing that he suffered from diminished capacity to due to the gay panic disorder that he experienced when uh, Amager revealed his attraction on the Jenny Jones show, which rendered him unable to plan the killing uh, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So all of the evidence pointed to the fact that it was a very planned um, murder, but he basically said that he lacked capacity. He, he essentially lost his mind due to this gay panic disorder And um, sadly, the jury ended up reducing the charge from a premeditated murder to second degree murder, which, again, means that they found that what he did was not premeditated. It was intentional, but not premeditated, which in the end results in uh, a lesser sentence. And there's one more case I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, In 2001, there was an assistant DA uh, in Fulton County, Georgia, who was struck over the head uh, over a dozen times by... Uh, the defendant, Reed, and he ended up dying from his injuries. And at trial, Reed's attorney claimed that Reed killed uh, the assistant DA to protect himself from unwanted sexual advances. Uh, But the medical examiner in that case testified that the assistant DA was asleep at the time of the murder. Um, Regardless, the jury acquitted Reed of the murder despite Reed's full confession to having murdered him. Um, he essentially asserted the gay panic uh, defense and said that he he you know he was doing it to protect himself. It was essentially self defense um, with this attached argument of gay panic. And in the end, even though he completely admitted to the murder, the jury ended up acquitting him. So 
I mean, as you can see from these cases, it's clear that defendants have been able to successfully argue that their convictions should be for lesser crimes or their sentences should be shorter just based upon the argument that they panicked because their victim was gay or transgender. Um, And some courts and legislatures have begun to curb the use of the gay and trans panic defenses, but a lot of states are lagging behind. Um, And, you know, one of the things that can be done is that courts should be instructing juries to make decisions without that sort of bias or prejudice. However, jury instructions are often not enough to ensure that people aren't swayed by discriminatory appeals. So legislatures should specify that neither nonviolent sexual advances nor the discovery of a person's gender identity can be adequate provocation for murder. Um, And the reason why it's so important to have laws passed and, and put in place to prohibit these types of defenses from going through is because without any laws in place, what you're essentially doing is you're leaving it to judges across the country to instruct juries to not consider defenses like this. But judges have their own biases. And if you leave it to judges to decide whether or not they're going to instruct a jury to ignore certain defenses, what you'll have is inconsistency with respect to how these cases are treated. And you'll still have certain victims uh, who are trans or gay. Essentially, the crime that's committed against them will be treated very differently than a crime against someone who's not trans or gay. And that's something that just should not be tolerated in this country. And so I I think it's just so important for every state in the country to be passing laws like this. Um, Some argue that these laws aren't necessary, that judges are already providing these instructions. But just based on the cases that I just reviewed with you, um, you can see that these defenses are still being asserted and they are effective. And so until the government of each state, the state government, passes laws prohibiting these types of defenses, I think we will continue to see that um, people that uh, commit violent crimes against trans, gender, and gay people uh, could end up getting a lesser conviction than people who don't have the ability to raise that defense. And so um, I just thought it was very important to discuss this. Um, congratulations to Nevada for passing this bill. Uh, let's see what happens with these other states that are considering similar bills. And um, let's hope that we continue to see this um, progressive change where um, more and more laws to protect the LGBTQ community are being passed. Anyway, that's what I wanted to discuss this week. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or you just want to reach out to say hi, as always, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is thewholetruthpod at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at thewholetruthpod. Uh, thanks so much and have a great week. <laughs>